returning with another crucial exposure of the globalist oligarchy, a biofascist technocracy, and their continuous war against American national sovereignty and constitutional individual liberty. Welcome back. So we're here back with the Looking Glass Forum. We're doing the hard, heavy lifting. The, uh, we're doing the research for you. We're back here with the, it's the day off. We got a day off from, from working hard every day to pay those taxes. They're not really taxes, right? It's really just a, a credit line. Our, our huge federal trillion dollar credit line. We got to work hard every day to pay pay that back. I'm sure they'll dial that up soon. I'm sure they'll dial it up to like 90 cents on the dollar. What are you going to do then? I mean, it really talks about the kind of position we're in as Americans. Try to maintain our American pride. Put your hand over your heart when you do the allegiance to the pledge, right? You, you try to, you know, wave your flag and, and just be proud. You want to be proud of Washington, D.C., George Washington. George Washington, the greatest American patriot. But, of course, they made that into a murder pit. It's, uh, was Seth Rich killed there? I have to look that up. And the problem with Washington, D.C. is it's always been a swampy, a den of murderous conspiracy, even before it was the capital of the United States. And we have to just present the horrifying facts that the the Uniparty in Washington, D.C. is interested in furthering the plans of, of the, the party of Davos, the internationalist agenda, right? So it's like we're having... I, we just look at the headlines today. It looks like that they're having a class action lawsuit against the Pentagon because the contractors and the, the military personnel and the employees. I mean, our warriors, our, our fighting force shouldn't be on any level treated as employees, but that, that's what's happened, right? We've gotten to this point now where our entire way of life, the means by which we exist philosophically, the whole purpose of us uh, getting up every day and putting our pants on and being Americans is to is to fight for freedom around the world and for ourselves and most of all. So in any case, we're going back through here and got podcast chronicles here and we're working hard to come through with the the research about Karl Marx. And of course, Karl Marx is an interesting figure living in England, a German, and we'll have to always go back and deal with Marxism for a long time, probably for the rest of human history. I imagine there's going to be another iteration, another permutation of this idea virus that, that's so destructive to our, our students and our young people and, and to people who just haven't come to grasp with the nature of the universe as far as the idea that the haves and the have-nots and, and just really the inability to, to rectify the difference between cultures and time and place. I mean, how long does it take for a culture to really build itself up to become a high a highly orchestrated, enriched, and wealthy, intellectually, educationally, academically, industrially, in every way, to have, to have roads, to have schools of higher learning that are teaching the students to develop into the next generation, to, to go farther, to take the, the scientific advancements and the medical discoveries, and to take them farther each time, and to go to, with our, our you know, microbiology into the cell, the living cells, to understand, to go into space, to, to push farther into the into the to the cosmos, into this particular solar system, these planetary bodies, and discover everything that's there for us. That's the development and the progression of human history and the establishment of human civilization that Marx and Marxists seek to, to retard. So it's just the process of retarding the entire generation, the entire universal cohort of academ uh, the academic body of students have to be adulterated with these 
idea viruses. So in the development in the developmental stages, in these crucial periods where they're sucking in information like a sponge and they're learning so quickly, you have to insert into that process destructive ideas, self-destructive, destructive to the families, destructive to their parents, destructive to the society, so that as they develop as people, they no longer become positive integers of society, components of the social order that are, that are good and affirming and strong, pillars of the community, if you will, but they become dissolute they become the opposite of that they become people who are going to constantly be trying to find ways to erode society and corrode the social underpinnings of a country for the purposes of ideology you know because of communism and because you know they, they just raise up a figure that's that's what the, that's what's so mystifying about marxism is that really marxism really nobody he could be like the guy down the street named plumber and we have plumberism you know he just he just a the, the individual that who who got whose face got stamped on the idea, so he really doesn't get much credit for it because he didn't really come up with it because he's really a stooge because Karl Marx is really not that that much of a student. He, he's more of a, a kind of a bum. He's a homeless vagrant who who is poor and dies penniless and he's, he's poor his entire life and he really just he's in London and he really just kind of scratches the surface of the intellectual pond so ac academia if you will is really just he's really just nearby and he gra gathers enough of the anarchists and the communists and enough of the the information and the sloganism and the sloganeering in order to put together some pamphlets and ultimately he does have some books that are accredited to his name but as we'll see as we go into our, our research it's, it's probably likely that he did not write them he maybe wrote some of the pamphlets he may be responsible for some of the sloganeering but when it comes to some of the other books Das Kapital and, and so on and so forth he's, he's probably not in them he's probably not capable of it and that's not just to to down him but it's to point out that there were people behind him there were people that were also in the libraries and in the university halls of London who pay attention to him and who put him to good use. So we're going to get all into this whole issue of Marx. And really we want to talk about how it's relevant today. So we're going to discuss here. We're going to introduce some articles about how it relates to Black Lives Matter. We're going to have a, an intelligent, American, Protestant, open-minded, philosophical, if you will, discussion about the nature of Marxism, what it is and what it is not, and those who try to cling on, the clingers, who try to cling on to it today to, in order to make themselves relevant or to how it really serves is the an ideological basis for civilizational decay. And so they want to promote in every way the dissolution and, and the, the deconstruction and the breakdown of all things that uh, that make our society strong and to give way to just animalism. So that in as much as that Karl Marx thought that all women should be held in, in common. It's a weird thing to say. I mean, this is like 1844 when this guy's really coming out and he looks at women and he, he, he abhors marriage and he thinks that those who have families together are bourgeoisie and are poor, and, he, and that and that women should just be held in, in common. So I wonder how that would work. I mean, you, you would just have it would just be like like living in the, in the jungle, and you just run down into the jungle, and you just see a woman, and you grab her, and you and you just have her in common, and you just throw her aside, and you run along, and then everyone has the, a woman in the women in common. It's just it's such a just it's such a a horrific and demonic statement that to, to think that, that that you would break humanity down into just raping cavemen, uh, savage, predatory bands of... Uh, and, and so ultimately, that's what you would get. That's what you would get in the Bolshevik Revolution. Lots of raping. 
lots and lots of raping. We get that with the the, the battle, the battle of Stalingrad between the Nazis and the Russians, the, the, as far as the Germans in World War Two. Just the the stories of rapine and just the humiliation of women on all sides and everywhere you would look was just absolutely atrocious. It's just it's mind numbing and disturbing. It, 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 that, that's if you have a soul, and if you don't have a soul. Uh, like the Marxists suggest, like a lot of these popular Marxists, they like to throw around a lot of intellectual jargon and, and present these sophistry, these sophisticated intellectual arguments that they're just circular reasoning and produce no results. See, in a society, in a nation, we need results. We need the work to get done. We need the, the medicines to be enhanced and to get getting better. We need medical science to be improving and making gains. We need our all of our industries to advance all of our scientific funds to be moving forward. And so these guys, that's why they're in the in the college campuses turning down math and, and, and doing away with anything that's developmental because they just want to they want to fragment and stagnate society so that it doesn't move forward anymore. There's no more satellite probes to Jupiter, there's no more catheters that go deep into your veins and clear out blockages and cause you to live for 20 more years. There's no more hospital policies that allow for people to be Treated for illnesses before, preventative treatments, if you will, rather than just waiting for you to get sick and bring you in and try to blow your lungs out with a respirator. And so that's 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 what the hospital policies at a national level can do when they pay pay them a hundred grand for every COVID death. So they're just trying to fill up the morgue, you know, to get to get paid. You know, they got to cover for all the big expenses of of having um, free patients because they have half the people are from Guatemala or from Ecuador. Or etc., and they're just lining up and going through our hospitals, and they don't have any money. So we have this kind of strange disequilibrium within the nature of what it means to be an American, and what is our purpose, and, and what is what? Well, why do doctors heal? Why do scientists research? Is it for anti-racism, or is it for so? You know, that's why that's how idea viruses can bog us down so completely in our ability to to think freely. That's why propaganda is so dangerous. And more about the history of Karl Marx here. Let's listen to some of the background information on BLM and Marxism and where it connects. The making of a new Marxist revolution. Not a lot of people in this day and age associate Black Lives Matter with Marxism. It's almost, you know, some people would say you're not even allowed to make that association. And you have a different story to tell here. Uh, I mean, you put your finger right on it when you said you're not even allowed to make that association. Uh, Amazon refused to run our ads for the book. We were informed the book was uh, published September 7th by Encounter Books. And uh, about six days later, we were informed by Amazon that because it was uh, the subject matter of the book was, was debated, was highly debated, not debatable, debated, they had they would not run the ads and we went back to them and said this is a book about public policy and public matters which by nature are highly debated and if in the in a democracy we cannot debate public issues then democracy dies and they reversed themselves they allowed the uh, the ads to run um and i'm pretty sure that it was the connection of blm with marxism uh, many people ignore the fact that the founders 
uh, and the people who led the BLM organizations, especially the main organization, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, are Marxists who were recruited and trained by old communists from an early era. Uh, and you're not allowed to make that, uh, to, 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 to just assert that fact, to quote them. All I do is quote them in my book. You know, Alicia Garza, Patrice Coulers, or Paul Tometi, uh, and, and, and state their, their previous associations, and state their goals. What they say they want to do. What their trainers say they want to do. What their funders say they want to do. Um, well, let me just finish by saying that I think the reason for that is that the slogan and the concept of Black Lives Matter is unimpeachable. It's a fantastic concept. I say Black Lives Matter. I don't even have to say All Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter to me, African Americans have uniquely suffered in our history. We need to, I, I feel like I need to assert that by saying that Black Lives Matter. But, you, but the concept is very different from the movement, very different from the organizations, very different from the founders. My book is about the organizations and their founders. When we reached out to Amazon, a spokesperson told us that Amazon's, quote, policies were not enforced correctly. We will be providing additional training to ensure our teams are clear on our policies, Amazon said. You know, this is a meticulously researched book. I see you went to really great pains to kind of catalog absolutely everything. I noticed that there's this kind of giant, giant footnote uh, section at the end, um, which is actually very helpful. Tell me a little bit about the goals. You mentioned that you, you, quote, you quote the founders and their uh, inspirations directly. So uh, let me just make a quick reference to the notes, the, uh, the end. I want to do the, the un-Howard Zinn thing. Howard Zinn wrote this hugely influential book, A People's History of the United States, which makes all these outlandish claims, and he doesn't have a single, not a single note, not, you know, nothing, he doesn't cite anything, any source. I wanted to do the opposite. Um, let's start with Alicia Garza one of the main founders of uh, BLM. You know, she told a group of um, uh, Marxists in Maine in 2009, what we're talking about is dismantling the organizing principle of society, quote-unquote. We have to dismantle how we've organized as a society. That's what she wants to do. Uh, that is not... That is, a, that is very holistic. Uh, that is um, your son's little league, baseball little league, your daughter's uh, Girl Scout troop, uh, your book club. Everything is part of systemic racism and needs to be uh, dismantled and something else new needs to be put in its place. And what that is, we could go back to her as a source when she said to another group of Marxists, this time international Marxists, uh, in 2015, that black lives cannot matter if we have capitalism. That capitalism is racist, and that we have to dismantle capitalism. And that is a thought, the concept that is shared by Patrice Coulers, 
Kapal Tanari, Malina Abdullah, all the other leaders, they based their, uh, their biggest intellectual mentor is Angela Davis, who ran SDP on the Communist Party ticket, who's still around. She goes to universities today, raises her fist and say, I'm now a communist and I've always been a communist. And the students don't know any better, so they stand up and give her standing ovations. Uh, it's like, you know, the same way Brezhnev used to be uh, applauded at the end of one of his long speeches. But these students are doing that, uh, not because they've been told to, they've been doing to they give her, they think it's an applause line to say she's communist because they haven't been taught what communism is. You know, uh, you just reminded me of this vignette which you offer in the book. Um, I believe it's in, you know, 2017. Um, President Trump has just been elected. Um, and Angela Davis appears on Democracy Now! with others. Right. And there's a conversation. Tell them just briefly with Right. And um, she, she talks about why Hillary lost. And she, doesn't, she never mentions Hillary. She talks about the other candidate, Angela Davis. And she says that the other candidate lost because she was not able to understand the moment. Was not able to grasp what was happening. And I think that, uh, I think that the people around Joe Biden, he doesn't watch democracy now, you know, uh, he's probably watching prices right that day. But the people around him understand the moment that they need to he needs to cater so this is why joe biden a, a a career politician who in 40 years never showed any interest in anything woke now does not even mention the word equality everything is equity which has now become the functional opposite of equality this is why he's signing bills that are race conscious for the first time since lbj signed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And I think that Angela Davis, who's, who's, this is her metier, has been for decades, who was educated by one of the, the top critical theorists of his time, Herbert Marcuse, was her mentor and professor in, in, in philosophy. She understands the moment for the left. She understands why right now the debate we're having on reconciliation and the, the, the infrastructure bill, Joe Biden has sided with the left, not with the moderates in his party, not with Joe Manchin, Christian Cinema, and the moderates, the moderate Democrats in the House. He has sided with Bernie Sanders and, and, and AOC, Cory Bush, and, and the, the squad, and the very far left of his party. And I think that is, to me, that is captured by that exchange. It's about a 20-minute exchange between Angela Davis and Alicia Garza, in which Alicia Garza, one of the main founders and organizers and leaders of the, the main Black Lives Matter group, which is Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, BLM GNF, she is effusive in her praise of Angela Davis. She says to this communist, you have taught us so much. I have, you know, all your books at home. I read them all the time. There's another piece to this, too, and it's something that was actually scrubbed, I think, from the BLM website, the idea that um, 
the organization stands against the traditional nuclear family or seeks to break it up. Right. This mantle is what it was used, and it was the the term of art they used was the Western prescribed family, which is the same thing as Friedrich Engels' patriarchal family, uh, which anybody who's married, at least in 2021, knows that it's just a perfect partnership. Uh, there's no patriarchy in a family, not in my family, not in any of the families of my friends. But they seek to. It's very interesting. A group, I think one of these critical race theory uh, professors just recently said that they, they, they recognized that it is growing up in an intact family that bestows a comforts privilege in society. But their answer to that was not to to promote this model of the intact family. The answer to that was again to dismantle it. That word again. Dismantle the family. And this goes back to Friedrich Engels, Karl Marx, and the 1848 Communist Manifesto, where they say, abolish the family. The family, they've understood, and, and, and Antonio Gramsci understood it later in the 1920s, Max Horkheimer understood it in the, 1960s, in the 1930s and 40s, and his assistant, Herbert Marcuse, understood it, all communists, all Marxists that I'm quoting here. In Horkheimer's case and in Marcuse's case, not members of the party. Gramsci was a founder of the Communist Party, but definitely Marxist. Um, that the family is, in Horkheimer's case, he writes an essay in the in the forties describing how the authoritarian personality is given its start in the family. Marcuse borrows from Freud in in his that you know this, we should have a, a libidinal liberation. We should do whatever we want. He he understood. Oh, all understood. George Lukacs, the the cultural commissar of the Hungarian Soviet, the short-lived Hungarian Soviet of 1919, whose innovation was to teach depravity to school children. And the, in the Hungarian Soviet of 1919, they've all understood that the family needs to be dismantled. Keith Millett, the feminist, who borrows a lot and quotes uh, from Engels and quotes Engels a lot in her books. They've all targeted the family because it's the basic pillar of society. To the point that they even recognize that growing up in an intact family gives you a great benefit and, and, and helps you prevent poverty later on in life. What they want to do is equalize to the bottom, to destroy this model. So we'll just pause right there. We definitely will add the clip to the show notes so you can take a listen to the entire conversation and I hope that you'll support the author and get his book and, and we're really trying to find good references to discuss the difficulties and the dilemmas of our friendly neighborhood philosopher German philosopher old Karl Marx and it's going to go back into the issues there with the Frankfurt School the issues with uh, the German philosophy department and can you imagine in 1977 what it must have been like, and all the strange secret societies of Lucifer that were operating there. And we'll get, in time, we'll, we'll be able to to put the layers, the different layers, historically onto these events so that you can understand that really Herbert Marcuse, and you, you can always hear about this guy, and he's kind of the, the latest brainchild and mastermind behind the communist evil initiative for, for destroying the world. And so, 
when you're trying to wrap your head around what they're talking about and trying to make sense out of it, you won't be able to, you'll get, you won't be able to manage understanding what their goal is because ultimately it's self-destruction. It's like trying to follow a one, two, three, four step list, a, a list of instructions that require you to pour gasoline on yourself, strike a match, and light yourself on fire. And so if you're reading the directions, one, two, three, four, uh, all the steps, you, you have to freeze and, and pause. And, you, you, you know, that's that's the issue with these Marxists is they always want us to self-immolate and self-destroy our, our family and our, and our parents and our, our credos and our values and our faith. And, of course, it's only in the West. They don't ever try this crap with the Taliban. It's weird. But what we're really dealing with is that these German philosophers, and these are the the next le- next level acolytes and followers of, of Marx and Hegel, and they represent the same schools, the same Berlin universities, the same Bavarian campuses. And you go back into the 1800s and the 1700s, it's, it's the same Bavarian Illuminati conspirators out of out of German universities. The, always these high, highly intellectual philosophy doctors, right, running around like Adam Weishaupt, this little band of uh, you know university students at the University of Ingolstadt, or you know, it's always some university. It's always over there, Yale. There's a secret society, of Skull and Bones, who derived from Hegel, who derived from Germany, and they set up their secret secret society shop there and started to immediately invoke their schemes of geopolitical machinations. They immediately, in the first generation of Skull and Bones, had their members in the White House. It didn't take them a hundred years to develop and eventually, you know, have members that did, that were insinuated into power. These initial initial founding members were coordinated into place. The entire Skull and Bones apparatus was founded to be a front, a powerful, dangerous front for the Illuminati, for the German Illuminati in the United States. And everybody knows this. I mean, it's it's so hard to really, it's it's so hard to live in this weird george orwell society this weird twisted world where everything is an illusion to a lie pretended of itself so no one can really say the outright truth we have to to make an illusion to a lie that references the truth that no one's allowed to say out loud and then that's the kind of world it's 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 intolerable if you ask me you can just hand me the hemlock done with this place you guys have and and, and of course that's what the, the marxists accomplish with this whole thing, is that they ultimately desecrate the target so completely. So that's what they're focusing on now, is the American culture, the American people, apple pie, baseball, you know, and just the, the interplay and the dynamics between children. I mean, these these activists, these, these Marcusa, Marxist, Luciferian acolytes are here in your, in your kid's classroom. And they're here to ruin your kids. Like, the way the serpent goes into the the sparrow's nest, and you just, apparently you're unaware, you're unfeeling, and you're just letting the system of government education, the, the apparatus of bureaucratic federal control over your money, your dollar, over your children's minds, over your, your future, it's, it's, you have to begin to resist and understand what it is. So, in dealing with this, we're going to take it a little bit farther. We have to learn more about the nature of Marxism. So after Yanye Kellogg's American Thought Leaders, we're going to now turn briefly to the Buck Sexton show and just hear what he has to say. And it's just, it really adds to the point that we're trying to make here in these episodes and to the discussion that we need to be having as educated and intelligent, moral, responsible Americans regarding our children. Take a listen. I wanted to give you more details on it today, spend more time on it, but because of 
what it tells us about what's really going on. Why is the left so upset? We'll start with a broader proposition. Why is the left so upset about people speaking out in these school board meetings? Isn't that the purpose of a school board meeting? Aren't parents supposed to be able to say, you know what, we think that what you're teaching our kids is harmful, is untrue. We think that the politicization, the indoctrination of our children is wrong. Isn't that why it's supposed to exist? You have to remember, if the left didn't have control, and it didn't have it doesn't have control of these things because it builds them. It seizes, like a terrorist seizing the controls of a an airplane in the cockpit. They didn't build the plane, right? Not a great pilot, but they seize control of institutions because they have a lust for power and they have no moral compunction about how they seize power. So they're very good at taking control of things. And they have done that. I mean, you know, the left didn't build the, the progressive left of the 20th century. They didn't build the hallowed universities that they now run with an iron fist. If they didn't build these government agencies and institutions, well, in some cases, maybe they built them, depends on how new they are, that they now wield as the fourth branch of government against the American people. But they do understand how to get into the cockpit and take the levers of power. That's what they're excellent at. They've done that in the public school system across the country. And I think that conservatives have lulled themselves into a false sense of security by thinking you know what we can do in response to this? Just try to push for neutral teaching. There's no such thing as neutral teaching. You can either teach American history where you believe America is a great country and this is a magnificent experiment in democracy. We've been bequeathed this amazing republic by our founding fathers and those who came before us and those who shed blood on foreign and domestic battlefields to preserve our freedom. You can believe that or you can think that this is a evil, racist, oppressive, colonialist entity that must always pay uh, pay reparations and homage to not just anybody here, but the rest of the world for all the bad things we've done. Right? We, we have to always be apologizing. The constant bowing tour. That's another version, another vision of America. We don't want kids to be taught that in schools, uh, but that's what's going on now. And you can see we talk often about the weaponization of bureaucracy for political ends. There's also a weapon, weaponization going on ideologically in the schools against traditional American values. There's a mom who went viral on uh, because there's a video of her, and she's, it's on foxnews.com today. A concerned parent who survived the Chinese Revolution sounds the alarm on the DOJ and school board scare tactics. And this is one of those moments, this is a circumstance where she Van Fleet is her name. She's coming forward and saying, this reminds me a bit of the cultural revolution that occurred back in the, in the 60s and 70s in China. Here is what she says about it. When I was in China, I spent my entire school years in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. So I'm very very familiar with the communist tactics of how they divide people, how they cancel the Chinese traditional culture and destroy our heritage. And all this is happening here in America. Now they are labeling parents and concerned citizens like me as domestic terrorists. What that can do? You may lose your freedom. I do have a question. 
What's next step? Is the Tiananmen Square crackdown the next? Would parents one day risk their lives just to speak up for the children? That's why I'm here. It was quite an unsettling day when that memo came out from the Attorney General, the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of the United States Government, threatening, essentially, parents for speaking out about the leftist indoctrination that their children are put through in schools. And when she talks about this, this mother talks about the Cultural Revolution, remember what that really meant, what was going on back then. There were the Red Guards, which was a pseudo-military designation adopted by secondary school and university students, uh, university students who saw themselves as Chairman Mao's vanguard. So it was actually students who were mobilized and used to police and in the most thuggish possible fashion intimidate the rest of society into compliance. So this mentality you see on college campuses of students who demand you only use certain words or not use, you know, you don't use some words, only certain people can say certain things. They're looking for total control. They are totalitarian in their approach. At a prestigious secondary school, for example, in Beijing, where both Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, former premier of China, uh, attended school, students beat a teacher savagely and left her dying in a handcart. I mean, there, there are these famous incidents. This is at one of the most prestigious private schools in all of China at the time. This is back from the Cultural Revolution. And one of the reasons she was attacked was just because the students thought that she had inadequate, they said, inadequate love and respect for Chairman Mao. So I think that's an important and neat segue into the next part of our discussion here. And it has to do with the kind of maniacal, frenzied, I guess the, the way to put it is the radical nature of these particular intellectual vandals has reached all the way and has always reached all the way into academia, into the classroom, into shaping young minds as to be able to, to steer the direction of the future and in order to instate future ideals that are yet unrealized. So it goes to the ambition of these particular dangerous and cunning individuals who are trying to shape this kind of Marxist policy and bring it in, 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 a, in Marxism itself as an underhanded way to introduce the poison pill and introduce the ideological poison in, in as much as that Marx just leads to the, 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 the derivation of the soul and the society and the family. And so you have people that are vagrants living in the streets who just want to try to burn down federal courthouses all day. And, and that's their life's ambition, you know. They, they couldn't even finish the college process because the, the, the virulent ideological contagion, the contagious philosophies of these radicals is so extreme that in, in the process of going there to get their education and have a better future, they threw it all away to run around and try to engage in the praxis of this communism. And, and again, communism just is a way of saying thievery so that, you know, what you have is no longer yours and and what you look you, you know, see that your neighbors have is no longer theirs, but everything is just everyone's. So it's everything is just like a buffet. So just come on through and just get what you like. And that's kind of the, 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 the kind of outrageous and asinine and stupid and idiotic practices and policies of communism. And, and then they try to do it. They try to go live in the, in the parks in squalor and trying to uh, to just have women in common, right? And then 
get up early so they can, you know, take a bath with a with a, a bottle of water and run into your kid's classroom to do their day job and teach them all about how to become good radicals to overthrow the society. So that, that, that's the purpose. The purpose is not to make sense or have any kind of real useful, like remember when you were a kid in school, you, were, you asked yourself, is this going to have any use to me when I get older and I grow up? Will this, will this be practical to me in the future? It doesn't matter. There is no more future with, with Marxism and with the radical in, uh, nature of Engels philosophy. It's all this kind of German anarchism that leads to somebody's house has to get blown up by a bomb, right? Somebody has to make the bomb. Some political agitator has to get blown up. It's just a process of deciding. It all really just serves the devil. That's what we're really kind of bring to the front here. Let's introduce the next article here. So it's really Alex Newman, the opt-out program that he likes to talk about here, and Liberty and Finance. And he's discussing how we'll have to break down the way that the actual American public education system was developed over a century ago to do exactly what it's doing now. And it was developed by people who were, at that time, supporters of communism and Marx. So I'll have to really listen to this interesting breakdown here. A month since we spoke with you, and since then, the stories you've been warning us about that you said would be coming, this onslaught of basically government indoctrination of our children and our families and uh, trying to get us to be complicit in surrendering our freedoms voluntarily has accelerated. There was just a very high-profile story that came out on all the national media about a week ago about Project uh, and Veritas, who did a behind-the-scenes undercover video expose of a honors high school, uh, public school teacher in California dedicated to creating revolutionaries in his classroom, as he put it. Can you tell us what we know about that and why it may not be as uncommon as people might think and uh, why you've been warning us about this for some time? Yeah, thank you, Dunnigan. And this story that just came out from Project Veritas was interesting. It was an actual member of Antifa. He put up an Antifa flag and an LGBT flag in his classroom, and he was caught on camera saying, hey, I've got 180 days to turn these children into revolutionaries. He said he wanted to make them into martyrs for the cause. Uh, literally, he viewed his role not as actually educating these students, but indoctrinating them into brainwashing them into becoming uh, cannon fodder for a communist revolution. Uh, for those of you who don't understand the significance of that, you probably have not been paying attention for the last 100 years when communists have been slaughtering, butchering, torturing hundreds of millions of innocent human beings in the most barbarous fashion imaginable. But what I tell people is, that's not even the problem. Uh, this lunatic teacher, he is a nothing in the big scheme of things. He is not even the tip of the iceberg. The entire system was designed, was created to do what this teacher inadvertently re revealed on camera to the American people. Uh, if you trace the origins of the American public education system back to the very beginning, um, every single one of the key people in the creation of the government school system and the takeover of education from the parents and from the churches and from the private sector, put it into the hands of government, every single one of the key people to a man was a communist who rejected God, who rejected the Bible, who wanted to use the school system to shift the views, the beliefs, the attitudes of children away from 
uh, our Christian Republic, individual liberty, God-given rights type uh, foundations in this country toward a collectivist utopia. Uh, that's not my opinion. That's not a theory. It's not extrapolation. It's a documented fact, and I could name them all. You've got Robert Owen. You've got Horace Mann. You've got John Dewey. If you go back and read their writings, this is what they wanted. It just so happens that this doofus got caught on camera saying what so many others uh, have, have envisioned all the way from the beginning. They just weren't dumb enough to say it in such a public setting. Let's hit on a couple of points that you just touched on. One is this idea of restricting thinking and uh, restricting access to books and to history and everything in the name of free thinking. So those who say, we're going we're gonna to liberate you from the oppression of these hierarchical structures that have tried to tell you what to think, we're going to set you free so you can be a free thinker, then they end up burning all the books, changing the history, all this sort of thing. Can you talk to us about that? Well, then again, you have to understand, all, all of those previous books, all that philosophy, all those great works of literature, all that art, all those history books, those were all the product of bourgeoisie thinking, okay? Or in, in the American context, those were the, the products of white supremacy and colonialism and imperialism and genocide. And so all of that needs to be thrown away so that we can have a, a new blank slate to write on. And, and that's really where these people are coming from. That is how they justify all this to themselves. Uh, we actually saw a very clear example of this during the Cultural Revolution in China. Uh, Chairman Mao... Uh, and his minions went around and they burned down libraries, they burned the books, they murdered the history professors, they tore down the statues, uh, and, and they said they were liberating people. Right? And, and the, the thinking was all of that came from uh, the old era, the old culture with the old habits. And that was oppressive. That was bad. That was all created by people who wanted to oppress you, and they designed the whole system to oppress you. And so in the name of tearing down the system and building up a new revolutionary system, we've got to get rid of all that old stuff. We've got to murder the people who still cling to those old ideals. So it looks a little bit different in the American context than it did in the Chinese context than it did in the Russian context. But ultimately, what we're dealing with is the same thing. Uh, you've got to rewrite the old history because everything prior to the revolution has to look bad, has to look horrible, has to look oppressive. Otherwise, how do you justify the things that are being done in the name of the revolution? Right? It has to be better than it was before, and the, the dictatorship of the proletariat in the case of Russia or China, uh, in, in America of uh, you know the uh, oppressed masses, I guess, um, it's got to be somehow superior to what existed prior. And the only way you can make the case that it was superior is by destroying all evidence of what used to exist before. Uh, and so that's what we're in the process of seeing now. That's why they're taking down the statues. That's why they're getting rid of all the old history books. They're literally throwing them out. Uh, Google is uh, delisting, de-indexing. They're rewriting their algorithms so that you'll never inadvertently come across truthful information about what things used to be like. Uh, it's, it, the parallels are very eerie, but you have to understand from their perspective, this is an essential ingredient to creating the new society. But there's more to it than just old versus new. I think that that may be an important element like you're describing, that we want to we want to say that what we're giving you is better than what came before, therefore we're going to uh, blank the slate from what came before. But why is it so often that the things that are targeted as the books that must be burned and that sort of thing are either you know religious in nature, 
know, that sort of thing, where there's a higher moral call than the state. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. If you have a higher moral call than the state, uh, then by definition, you're not going to worship the state, right? It goes back to this idea that Hegel advocated, that the state was really the embodiment of the divine of God on this planet, and all allegiance must be owed to the state by everyone. Um, it, it's a blasphemous idea. You're, you're turning the state into an idol. Uh, of course, the state uh, doesn't love you. The state is not going to feed you. The state is not going to uh, take care of your immortal soul. But this is what the state wants us to believe and those people who have set up the state as an idol. Uh, it's an absolutely critical component of this. Um, it also, I, I think it, there's a deeper explanation to all of this. Uh, when you look at Marxism, uh, we've been told that Marxism is an atheist philosophy, an atheist economic system. And Marx famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And so communists justify the burning of these religious texts, the, the smashing of churches, right? The Soviets were obsessed with blowing up churches, with turning them into, you know, discos for people to go uh, make out and stuff. Uh, and, and there's a reason why, right? So officially it was because religion is the opiate of the masses. That was the way that the bourgeois kept control of the peasants, so that instead of trying to get a better life in this life, they would just be content knowing that there was going to be something better in the next life. Uh, so that was the official explanation for why these things was done. But uh, I actually have a book with me, and I don't think anybody can truly understand Marxism without understanding the information contained in this book. Uh, I've got it in my other library, not behind me, or I'd pick it up and show it to you. But it's called Marx and Satan. And it was written by a, by a guy who... Um, really was in a position to know. A uh, Romanian pastor by the name of Richard Vermbrandt. Uh, he spent nine years being tortured in a Romanian gulag by communist barbarians. And when he got out, uh, you know, he was converting all the prison guards. He was preaching the gospel to them, and he was singing uh, hymns while they were torturing him. You know, they just couldn't understand it. But when he got out, he, he had this hypothesis that, well, uh, communism uh, must not just be atheistic. This is satanic. This comes from the pit of hell. Uh, that was his hypothesis. And so he started collecting research. He started gathering information. And what he found was, wow, he was more right than even he could have possibly imagined. This Marx ideology, if you will, was much more than that. It was much more than just the rejection of God, the, the denial of God's existence. And what he found was an enormous amount of evidence showing that Marx was, in fact, a Satanist. Uh, if he, for example, he quotes a lot of Marx's old poetry, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, but he has one where he says, uh, with Satan I have struck my deal. Right? I mean, just openly declaring his allegiance to Satan, admitting that he created some sort of compact with the Prince of Darkness. Uh, he's got others where he talks about how he just has this hatred for God, and he wants to destroy everything that God has ordained. And when you think about Marx's philosophy, it is, at its core, and at the antithesis of everything that God revealed. I mean, it is Satanism distilled to its essence. God ordained that there should be private property. Marx says private property is at the root of social oppression. So we need to dismantle private property. We need to steal everything from everyone. Whereas God said, thou shalt not steal, Marx says we must steal everything. 
Uh, God said, thou shalt not murder. Well, Mark, what does Mark say? We have to murder everybody who stands in the way, right? They're standing in the way of this utopia. Uh, he was literally an advocate for genocide, for exterminating entire people groups. Uh, he believed that capitalism was, you know, a, a stage before progressing to socialism and communism, and he believed that people groups that had not yet attained the capitalist stage, he talked about the Scottish Highlanders, for example, they just needed to be wiped off the face of the planet. I mean, they're 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 primitive. They they just need to be eradicated. He he was an advocate of mass murder. Uh, God ordained the family. God ordained marriage. And so Mark said we have to get rid of marriage. Uh, not only should there not be a monogamous man woman relationship for life. He said women should be held in common. Uh, everybody should be allowed to have relations with a particular woman. And children, then, the, the children that result from those unions, nobody will know who their father is. Children will be raised by the collective, by the state. Right? This is taking everything that God teaches and flipping it exactly on its head. You go through each of the commandments. Right? Have no other gods before me. Well, you make the state God. Right? Don't make for yourself any idols. Don't make for yourself any graven images. Well, the state becomes this super idol. Uh, on every single point, uh, the, the Marxists come down on the wrong side. And it's not because they're atheists. It's because this is a demonic, diabolical idea. And so when you ask, why, why are they so obsessed with burning religious books? Yes, in, in one sense, they want to make sure that you don't have allegiance to anything higher than the state, in this case, being God. And that's why, for example, the communist Chinese are ruthlessly persecuting the Uyghur Muslims, too. Right? They're, they're equal opportunity persecutors. If you have a God higher than the God of the state, you must be destroyed. But ultimately, we're dealing with a satanic system uh, that was developed by a satanic mind, I, I'm convinced, so behind the the overtly sophisticated language, we see that they are plotting and planning and developing theorems, intellectual strategies that they can pass on to their acolytes in the future. So they're laying down the precepts by which future radical agitators will operate and expand. So that's what Marcuse is doing, and that's really what Hegel he takes over from Adam Weishaupt after the, the French Revolution and the intense bloodshed, the way that they were able to scientifically and systematically rock the boat in France and destroy the entire society so completely that it was left in ruins and then give rise to a powerful military dictatorship in Napoleon. And so I think that's the kind of situation you see again and again. It happened, of course, again in, in the Weimar Republic with, with the rise of Adolf Hitler when the, the in the Weimar Republic, the money, the German money system spiraled into hyperinflation, and it gave way to such a huge crisis with the communists and the agitators that it gave power to the dictatorship of, of, of Hitler, obviously, and so on and so forth. And uh, in order to kind of understand how these secret societies operated in the background, Luciferian clubs, esoteric, the theosophical mystery schools were, were in the background, but this is in the foreground of the actual classroom and academia. So we're going to go back and rewind to the period of 1844. And they're going to spell out the terms by which they're going to create the cocktail and uh, light the fuse and detonate the future for all the people in Western civilization. And they're going to do this by manipulating their children and then teaching these dangerous ideological theorems that will create an outcome that they're trying to get, the result. So in order to kind of just lay this out, that obviously they, they always think they're too intelligent and that, that, that no one can understand or, or really penetrate the obscurity of their deep premises within their work here. But let's just, um, let's just read a little bit. 
According to Marcuse, Hegel, and Marx, human beings develop through a self-formative process, wherein the external world, nature, is appropriated and transformed according to human needs. Labor is one of the main areas for this self-formative activity. The idea that labor is an essential part of a self-formative process is what distinguishes Marx from the classical economists, such as Smith or Ricardo, etc. In classical economics, labor is simply the means by which individuals make provisions for themselves and their families. In these theories, labor is not viewed as that activity by which the human subject is constituted. The Marxian view of labor as a self-formative process is what makes possible the Marxian theory of alienation and revolution. So Marcuse goes, argues that in 18, the 1844 manuscripts, Marx shows how the role of labor as a self-realization or a self-formative process gets inverted. Instead of having his or her subjectivity affirmed, the individual becomes an object that is now shaped by external alien forces, hence Alien's theory makes a transaction from an examination of the self-formative process of labor to a critique of the forms of alienation caused by historical fasticity of capitalism. Within the historical fasticity of capitalism, this fact appears as the total inversion. Now we're going into to do a quotation here, Marcuse. This fact appears as the total inversion uh, and concealment of what critique had defined as the essence of man and human labor. Labor is not free activity, quote-unquote, or the universal and free self-realization of man, but his enslavement and loss of reality. The worker is not in the totality of his life expression, but something unessential, ein Unwissen, the purely physical subject of abstract activity. The objects of labor are not expressions and confirmations of the human reality of the worker, but alien things belonging to someone other than the worker, commodities, Marcuse. So, just to put a pause on it, Marcuse is just going to pick up where Marx left off and like breathe life back into the embers of this radical revolt against, you know, of, of the workers of the world, revolt and tear down your office building and, and, and just rob it and take everything as yours and you know and this kind of world re revolution so okay let's continue and now we're back to the the uh the primary text here marcuse will spend the rest of his life carrying out the investigation started in these early works what distinguishes his project from marx's is in the way in which each will deal with the problem of concealment mentioned in the above quote marx will develop two different but related approaches his critique of political economy is an attempt to disclose the inner logic of capitalism how it works as well as the contradictions that will lead to the collapse of capitalism the second approach is to work out a theory of revolution which presupposes the awakening of self-consciousness in the working class. In both approaches, concealment will give way to disclosure and social transformation. We saw earlier that Marx's predictions did not come true on either account. This failure, in part, led to what has been called the crisis of Marxism, to which the birth of the Frankfurt School was a response. Marcuse's work will go through many phases as he tries to unlock the key to revolutionary action. The next key move for him is to engage in a deeper study of Hegel as a source of critical social theory. Okay? You see what we're getting at here? 3.3. Negative dialectic thinking and social exchange. We'll continue on. 
1941, Marcuse's studies of Marx and Hegel culminated in a book entitled Reason and Revolution, Hegel and the Rise of Social Theory, 1941. This book accomplished several things. First, it disclosed the role of Hegel's most critical revolutionary and emancipatory concepts in the development of Marx's critical philosophy. Okay, got it. Secondarily, it rescued Hegel from the charge that his social and political philosophy was conservative and legit legitimated <clears throat> and legitimated the oppressive Prussian state. The third great accomplishment, or least goal embodies the first two accomplishments and is perhaps the most important for the formation of Marcuse's form of critical theory, the Hegelian Marxian notion of dialectic or what Marcuse will call negative thinking becomes a central element in Marcuse's critical theory. Negative thinking, dialectic. Okay, so what does dialectic mean? Dialectic means an argument, a confrontation, a conflict, a warfare in a sense. The Hegelian-Marxian notion of dialectic, or what Marcuse will call negative thinking, becomes a central element in Marcuse's critical theory. So, let's just continue on here. In part, reason and revolution is not an attempt to rescue Hegel, but rather an attempt to rescue dialectic and negative thinking. Marcuse makes this clear in a new preface to the 1960 edition of the book, the new preface entitled, A Note on Dialectic can actually stand on its own as a guide to reading and understanding Marcuse. Marcuse begins with this claim that this book is an attempt to rescue a form of thinking or a mental faculty which is in danger of being obliterated. Marcuse, 1960. 1960, okay, gotcha. As we proceed on here, the purpose of dialectic or negative thinking is to expose and then overcome by revolutionary action the contradictions by which advanced industrial societies are constituted. The problem of concealment occurs when, here, because not only does society produce contradictions and the forms of domination that come with them, but also produces the social and psychological mechanisms that conceal these contradictions. An example of a social contradiction is to coexist the coexistence of the growth of national wealth and poverty at the same time. Those who own, control, and influence the means of production the minority grow richer, while the workers, the minority, grow poorer. The idea that the unbridled attempt by the rich to become richer will somehow allow their wealth to trickle down so that all will benefit from the, has been proven false as the gap between the rich and the poor continues to grow. However, the trickle-down ideology is still very effective. The capitalists believe that unbridled competition is good for everyone conceals the goal of purging society of competition by allowing large corporations to buy out their competition. In this situation, the worker does not become a free and not a rational subject through her labor, but rather an object to be used by the economic system, a system that is a human creation, but over which the worker has no control. In the capitalist system, the worker is used as an object for the sake of production while not reaping the full benefits of production. In such a situation, the worker is not able to actualize his or her potential as a free and rational human being, but is instead reduced to a life of toil for the sake of survival. The existence of the worker erases her essence. The task of dialectic thinking is to bring the situation to consciousness. Once the situation is brought to consciousness, it can be resolved through revolutionary practice, thus Kellner writes, the central concepts presented by presented are precisely those of this book 
titled Reason and Revolution. Reason distinguishes between existence and essence through conceptualizing unrealized potentialities, norms, and ideals that are to be realized in social practice if social conditions prevent their realization. Reason calls for revolution. Marcuse's concept of essence is not transcendental, but historical. That is, there is no human essence apart from historical context. Within the context of historical happening, within material existence, what the human being could potentially be is already present. For example, it seems logical to assert that no human being would want to spend his or her entire life engaged in alienating labor just to remain in poverty. Nevertheless, this is precisely the situation in which many human beings find themselves. However, essence is embodied in this historical appearance in insofar as the potential for the worker to be free from exploitation and alienating toil is to present as a, po a real possibility that need only be actualized. In the society wherein the worker works, there is enough wealth produced by the worker to be free to free the worker of endless toil. In an essay entitled The Concept the concept of essence, Marcuse writes, materialist theory thus transcends the given state of fact and moves towards a different potentiality, proceeding from independent appearance to the essence that appears in it. But here, appearance and essence become members of a real antithesis arising from the particular historical structure of the social process of life. Marcuse, 1968. So what is all that crap really saying? It's a really fancy college classroom over-intellectual hyper-sophistry is what it is. It's hyper-sophistry. So in the background of what they're saying is that they think that in their air-conditioned environments, behind their desks, in their think tanks, in their uh, in their office uh, de desk cubicles there, in their uh, in the, the bureau of their investigative agencies, at the NSA, behind their, their computer terminals, right? That's what it's all about. They think that, that ultimately that they can control all the people in a scientific way, through a scientific means, through a process of analyzing and channeling resources in an intelligent way. And so they've been bundling mass fortunes for a long time. I think that's really what we see when we're looking at the life and the history of Cecil Rhodes and the Rhodes scholars and, and the, the round table secret societies that came out of that with Milner. Sir, uh, Sir Milner and all the, uh, the the power elites that were out of the British Empire there, but really what they did is they they began to leave the combined establishment of their fortunes behind for the for the purposes of, of their pursuits. So he, he left his huge fortune behind to empower all these massive secret societies and all these these state actions. And so you can imagine that that the Ford Foundation and the Oppenheimer Fund and and and, and all these massive uh, wealth that has been left behind has been set up and, and directed and constituted in, in a way so that it will continue to forward and advance the goals of these agendas even long after the, the people have, have died and so you can see the the, the the bill and the melinda gates foundation you know the clinton initiative all these mass uh, billion dollar fortunes that they put together will be left in the service of globalism and internationalism and that's kind of the pattern that we see set by those who are the the aristocracy of Europe, those who have the titles and the crowns, and who have been have lost their, their their standing in the world because of this outbreak of human freedom and democracy. So the the royals, the noble crowned heads, the barons and the dukes, right? All the princes and the princesses of Wales, or so on and so forth, all the, all the places of the world who have you know had had so much to, to look forward to the ruling of the world have had to step back and play 
titular, you know, a pretend role, almost like in a museum, as the predominance of national popular government. Republican nationalism with a democratic you know, voting process, the power of the, the democratic process of empowering the people was so complete and equalized people so completely that the idea of having a lord, an overlord, send his uh, his duke out with his knights to come and, and to round up their their, their uh, your property and take it away because everything you, you have belongs to someone else was so far gone that we needed to have a new scientific technotronic era of absolutism. And that's what you see with the statism, the absolute statism, where, where the state has become God. So ultimately now, what we're seeing with Marcuse also is that they're going to be able to understand the first-hand experience of those who are suffering and who, who live to suffer in poverty and to, to, to take on their perception and their first-hand experience and to imbue that experience with as the working class, uninformed, often illiterate, often overworked and underpaid, and those masses of people and try to find a way to harness them with a critical theory that would cause them to rise up and destroy everything in, in, around them and destroy all of, 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 like I said, ultimately Western civilization would be in self-destruct because of this ideological virus, this, 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 this contagion of the, coming out of academia, this, the thought contagion that would cause the, those who are, are ignorant and, 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 and the alienated labor, as they call them, would rise up and, and overthrow the world. And of course, these are the kind of profane and idiotic thoughts that come from people who are just masturbatory. You know, these are kind of the kind of guys who have who have palms and hands that are like real soft, and they never worked a day in their life, and they don't even know what what they're talking about as far as as labor. But they're trying to find a way to, to put themselves in, in the, the mind of the struggling working man. Of course, Karl Marx himself was never a struggling or working man. He was just an impoverished man who, who was a pedantic, a pseudo-academic, and who went around you know, basically learning the most radical ideas from those around him in London, and those who were influenced, you know, many of the radicals. There was many, of course, many of those the, of the Society of Jesus were fleeing there at the time from different places in the world where they were no longer allowed to, to travel because they were banned and outlawed so so and in so many instances. So they could be found in the uh, the museums and the, the libraries and, and the universities of London and of course that's where Marx is gonna get all of these ideas. So in order to take this a little further, we have another fascinating article we want to introduce. So here we have a fascinating discussion by an author and an intellectual and academic and it's the book, The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. And you can find this particular discussion at the Institute of World Politics. So we're just, we've kind of like tuned right into where we want to listen and we're going to listen here. The, so I've always been interested in the spiritual life of Karl Marx. And so a book on that would not be called God and Karl Marx, because Marx didn't believe in God. Marx rejected God. In fact, as the one of the poems that I quote at the start of the book says, and it was written, this poem was written by Marx in 1837, he said, Thus heaven I forfeited, I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. It's pretty chilling. And a lot of the guy's poetry, verse, plays was pretty chilling. And it was, I think that that particular, it's, it's hard to know 
with Marx when he's speaking biographically, when he's when he's speaking autobiographically, when he's talking about himself, when he's putting himself in the place of others, when he's just writing about somebody else in the way that a poet would or that or that a writer would. But that particular stanza, I mean, that is pretty autobiographical. Thus heaven I have forfeited, right? I, I know it full well. So Marx, who had once been a Christian, and, and he rejected that. And I wouldn't say, um, as a Catholic in particular, that Marx's soul was chosen for hell. I don't know if Marx felt his soul was chosen for hell. But, but that idea that heaven I have forfeited, I know it full well, well, that was Marx, because he ended up rejecting God. And he, he was baptized in 1823-1824, around the time that he was five or six years old. He was born May 5th, 1818, in Trier, Germany. So Trier is spelled like Trier, T-R-I-E-R. -E and it is, it is a very religious city. In fact, the ancient cathedral in Trier is is the one that was built by none other than Saint Helena, mother of Constantine, and it was Helena who made the pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the late 300s, so around 324, 330, 320s that period we're talking about, and she went there and brought back a number of different. Um, relics, artifacts, it's more than relics and artifacts, she brought, brought back what she believed was the crown of thorns, which is today in Notre Dame. She brought back what she believes was the holy lance, you know, the lance that the Roman soldier uh, pierced Christ with. She brought back, and this is, this to this day, is in the cathedral in Trier. She brought back the holy robe or holy coat that Christ had wore and on his way to the crucifixion that the Roman soldiers cast lots for at the foot of the cross. In fact, Marx, in one of his plays, one of his really chilling, sick, kind of scary plays, has his devil character, his demon character, who's like sawing on this violin. He, he dons this holy robe of Christ and this kind of mockery of Christ. Another poem that Marx wrote, that I lead off in the front of the book with from 1841, he, he says, see this sword, this blood-dark sword, which stabs unerringly within thy soul. Uh, see this sword, the Prince of Darkness sold it to me. And it's, it's that kind of thing that, that pervades Marx's poetry, his writing. He's writing about pale maidens who, who commit suicide, some of them in suicide packs. And a lot of this, this is a reflection of Marx's own personal life, including, including his, his really wretched family life. This is an amazing fact. I mean, name for me, anybody listening, another individual that you could think of historically that this applies to. Marx lost two daughters to suicide in suicide pacts with their husbands. So Marx had two daughters who killed themselves in suicide pacts with their husbands. 
You know, Marx wrote about pale maidens committing suicide. He wrote about suicide packs. He wrote about women committing suicide by ingesting poison. Uh, two of Marx's daughters committed suicide by ingesting poison given to them in suicide packs by their husbands. In fact, in one case, the husband backed out. He gave the daughter the, the poison. She killed herself, and then he backed out. Edward Abeling, a scoundrel awful guy, atheist, socialist, in fact, a lot like Marx, uh, just just a, just a wretched person that no one liked, and and contemporaries of Marx's daughter and Abeling thought that he, that he should have been convicted for murder, for killing her, for homicide, and he ran off with her money, whatever inheritance she had, <clears throat> which was not much, not much of, a, of an inheritance. The other son who did go through with the suicide pact with Marx's daughter. His name was Paul Lafargue. And he was, he had very low self-esteem. And part of that is attributable to the way his father-in-law treated him. Paul was partly Cuban. So to Karl Marx, that meant that he was partly Negro. In fact, Marx and Engels, they tried to deduce with scientific accuracy how much Negro blood is in Paul. One-eighth, one-twelfth. Uh, Marx referred to Paul as Negrillo, or the gorilla, because because he contained this, he had, he had this Cuban blood. And this is something that I hit in this book. Marx and Engels were both racists. They were bigots. And Marx was very anti-Semitic. I mean, some of the statements from Marx Quote, the Israelite faith is repulsive to me. Right? What is the worldly God of the Jew? Money. Haggling. Right? Uh, Marx writes some amazingly anti-Semitic stuff. If Karl Marx was a conservative, a right-winger, somebody that conservatives today liked, a person who conservative professors had busts of Marx in their offices at their colleges, Marx would be canceled. Marx would be finished. He would be widely known everywhere as a racist. But he's not widely known as a racist. He's not known as a racist, as an anti-Semite, or bigot at all, because he's a leftist. <laughs> and leftists protect him. That's, that's all there is to it. I always say, um, in fact, I suggested this to Young America's Foundation, that a campaign should be started by college students to um, cancel Marx, making the case that Marx was a racist. Uh, I, I mean, there are, they're, they're trying to dename things named for Ronald Reagan because of uh, one statement that Reagan made to Nixon in a private phone call in 1972 that just came out a few months ago, I've written about this for American Spectator. By the way, I'm at the offices of the American Spectator, so if you look behind me there, there's uh, Bob Terrell with Bill Clinton and a copy of the American Spectator. So if you see that, that's where, where I am right now. But I, I wrote about this attempt to cancel Reagan for something Reagan said that's hard to understand, hard to make sense out of, hard to really know what Reagan meant. Um, Definitely seems insensitive, totally out of character for Reagan, but frankly, 
is nothing compared to what Marx said many, 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 many times. Irony there, and this gets back to point one on uh, on on why I chose Marx. So Marx had been Marx was from a Jewish family, a family that had a number of rabbis in the previous generations. They they were they were religious Jews. They were practicing Jews. Um, you know, fairly orthodox. Marx's father converted to Christianity. He converted to Lutheranism. And so did Marx as well. And I talk about the relationship between the father and the son quite a bit in the book. The father remained a religious man and even told Carl, he said, you know, it's good, Carl, to have, to have belief in God. The belief in God, it's a virtuous thing. It's good for a man. Good for a person to have that. But Marx would go on to reject God, mainly in college. In fact, he came under the influence of a of a religion professor who was an atheist. So you can see <laughs> nothing has changed, right? You go to most universities today and, and, and you can you can take a religion course. It's probably probably taught by an atheist, not where I teach at Grove City College. Um, Somebody who goes to goes to my church has uh, their son went to a typical secular university, and and I was talking to the parents, and I, I was worried about that, about the kid's faith, and and, and they they told me, said, oh, it's okay. He signed up for a course on religion his his first semester. I'm thinking, hmm. I I asked them around Thanksgiving or Christmas break. How's it going? And they said, oh, it's, it's terribly liberal. And, and the religion course, it's taught by an atheist. <laughs> said, well, of course it is. We think it's taught by C.S. Lewis. Of course it's taught by an atheist. So even in Germany in the 1830s, Marx took a course from, it was like a systematic theology course taught by an atheist. And, and the professor's name was Bruno Bauer who was very anti-Semitic. And he, he and his favorite student, Carl, would even launch an, a, an archives of atheism journal together, which didn't last very long. In fact, one of, the, one of their escapades, they get together and they ride donkeys into a nearby village on Palm Sunday, mocking the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem. So that was, that was typical. See something popping up there. I want to make sure I'm still connected. The uh, so why why did I write this point one here in my little outline? I've always been interested in the faith of Marx, uh, you know, Marx and religion, Marx's rejection of God, what Marx believed his faith. I wasn't going to call his book that um, God and Karl Marx, and I've I've always known about Marx's fascination with the devil. Now, to that end, point two, what's my thesis? Well, it's not this. I have not found any evidence that Karl Marx was possessed, that he was a Satanist, right? You, 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 you look at the guy's poetry and other stuff and then things that the guy wrote. It's pretty, it's, it's a, this is a very disturbing portrait, right? I mean, the guy doesn't have to be, you know, at, Full demonic possession or anything, right? But but you know, the, the, there's this is pretty this is pretty dark. There's some very very shady stuff going on here. I do quote 
some people who think that maybe Marx was possessed. And one of them, Robert Payne, a British man of letters, a British professor of, uh, he was a translator, he, uh, he, 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 he read plays, playwright himself, I believe. Uh, a very thoughtful um, individual, and he wrote two outstanding biographies of Marx. In fact, I think he wrote more than two. But one was published by Simon and Schuster in 1968. I still think it's the best biography of Marx. Another by NYU Press. That was a few years later. And in the 1968 Simon and Schuster book, he has a chapter called, called The Demons. Where, where he says in there that, that he believes that Marx might well have been possessed. Let me see if I can get the exact quote here from you. Here it is. This is an exact quote from, from Payne. <clears throat> the Demons. That's the, the name of the chapter in his 1968 biography. Quote, there were times when Marx seemed to be possessed by demons. Marx had the devil's view of the world, and he had the devil's malignity. Sometimes he seemed to know that he was accomplishing works of evil. So that's Payne. Payne, Payne actually writes that. Now another who says this is actually who goes even further is the as the late Reverend Richard Wormbrock, who wrote uh, the book Tortured for Christ. And he had been he had been tortured in communist prisons in Romania, and he said he was tortured by by men who literally who literally chanted, "I am the devil, I am the devil." And Warren Braun even said to one of his captors at one point, he's like, "Why are you doing this? Why are you so vicious? Why are you so cruel?" And and the communist cap. Uh, 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 captor or, or prison guards said that I've lived I've lived all my life for this moment when I can express all the evil in my heart against you and Mark and Warren Braun said he said that I had people torturing me who, who shouted I am the devil he said all the scenes in Dante's Inferno cannot begin to compare it to the hell of what life was like in communist prison camps and what they did to religious prisoners. And in Tortured for Christ, Wormbrand even said that there were some scenes from the prison of Petesti that were so vile and so cruel and so diabolical and so indeed truly satanic that he can't even repeat them because of his heart would break from talking about them. Now, he wrote that Wormbrand did Tortured for Christ over 40 years ago. Wormbrand also did a book called Marx and Satan in the 1980s, where he argues that he thought that Marx was a Satanist. So as we're just kind of moving along here in the podcast, we're making our little analysis of this whole discussion, and that was a very fascinating discussion that we had, we had added there to the whole thing. And of course, as we said, Dr. Paul Kangor discusses his book, The Devil and Karl Marx. And in that vein, we just want to continue on a little bit more. I have another little reading here, and this is a book called The Lucifer Principle by Howard Bloom. And of course, without fail, we have to go and look up the section about Karl Marx. So, and we'll read. From 1852 to 1864, 
Karl Marx sat alone nearly every day in the corner of the library of the British Museum, going through books and assembling his theories. Little did he realize, but the bearded writer was simply the tool of fragmentary memes. Those ideas had been floating in the zeitgeist, waiting for a receptive human mind to come along and function as an enzyme functions in human metabolism, splicing together molecules destined for each other. Marx pasted together the ideas of his time and came up with the ideology named after him. At its birth, the new ideological meme was vulnerable and powerless. The only small batch of matter over which it had any control was the body and mind of Karl Marx. 150 pounds of isolated humanity. Marx was not a promising person in which an idea would wish to start its life. Though he occasionally made money as a newspaper correspondent, Marx's work was definitely not in demand. So, okay, just to step outside the text here, it looks like a newspaper correspondent. It looks like he was a journalist. He was in the media. Good to know. So we'll continue on. He was so foul-tempered and so cantankerous, so subject to turning even the tiniest discussion into a quarrel, that he had few friends and also no followers. One of his colleague professors said young Marx was always waving his fists in the air in a fury, quote-unquote, as if a thousand devils gripped his hair. And one of the many would-be friends Marx alienated recalled that the sarcasms, quote-unquote, with which he hailed his adversaries had the cold penetration of the executioner's axe. So, we'll just leave it there. I mean, I'll add in the link so you can pursue this yourself a little bit more if you have the time. I mean, I don't have the time. Nobody has the time anymore. But as we're moving on, let's go to our next article. We have another fascinating little look at uh, the discussion we have to turn to, of course, geopolitics and empire, who has to have a very fascinating outlook for us. And we have to go into the look at the uh, the fellow who wrote the, the book Google Archipelago. And it's interesting how they are taking a look at the, the situation here as globalists seem to take control of the woke culture in order to move the public towards complicity, towards their the control mechanisms of the Great Reset. And, and more about that with this. So let's just take a listen. Essentially, you were a leftist or Marxist, and only a few years ago, completely left the left and became a libertarian. Uh, I'm not, you know... I don't like to categorize myself so much. I'm not a libertarian, but there are many principles of libertarianism. And the Austrian school that I very much uh, align with, I have my Mises coffee cup here. Uh, and and as, as you mentioned, you know, you were recently run out of NYU by the leftist woke cancel culture, uh, as others have been, such as Mark Crispin Miller. Um, yeah. But... You know, for the last few years and decades, we've been seeing these separate threads kind of forming. You know, culturally, that of the progressive authoritarian left visible as wokeism. Economically, the for formation of the di digital gulag or Google archipelago, as you call it in your book, which is now censoring, deplatforming, unpersoning, uh, nonconformists. There's yeah. also, you know... Climate change-ism, which I call, which is being melded with COVID-1984, and which I see as two sides of the same coin, kind of this religious component, uh -huh, this religious component of this biofascist technocracy, which is, I think, basically eugenics uh, in disguise. Others, like Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, have written on how this biopolitics has literally become kind of like a new religion, replete with its own climate and COVID rituals and sacraments, uh, you, you refer to them as branch COVIDians, 
Uh, and so, you know, how convenient that all of these systems now are kind of coming online, emerging simultaneously to coalesce globally into this great reset that seems to want, want to become a dictatorial, uh, um, globally governing system that will, you know, sick or deploy wokeism or big tech on anyone who will not submit. So, you know, what I'm really most interested in understanding is this great reset, the Google archipelago that they're building around us and its, implica its implications for our lives, its component parts, which you describe in your book. You know, you've said in a recent interview that you want to try to understand the great reset and that your next book perhaps will be an attempt to do so. So I've got some questions, but, you know, where could we, where could we begin in, in dissecting all of this? Well, we could start with, uh, I guess we could start with just um, the Great Reset in terms of, let's talk, let's talk about how uh, woke ideology fits into it. And so I'd like to connect these pieces. Um, and this is, uh, you know, I'm not saying that they're, <clears throat> well, they are connected. I mean, the, the woke ideology is the, is the ideology that's being pervaded in order to bring about the Great Reset, in order to buy compliance from the from the population. Because other than total technocratic control or violence, state violence, you have to have some sort of means by which to achieve com complicity or compliance on the part of the subject. And I think woke ideology is the means of doing it. It, of course, you know, came came out of the academy and spread, but it's been, I think, engine. It's been it's been adopted and it's being co-opted, if not uh, completely controlled by uh, the uh, great resetters, for lack of a better term, and it's used to uh, habituate the the population into. Uh, believing in the, their unworthiness to have property, their unworthiness to have rights, uh, their, their unworthiness to, to have prospects. Uh, because the Great Reset establishes a kind of two-tiered system, a neo-feudalism, uh, with the corporate oligarchs on top and everyone else living under actually existing socialism. Um, and so... The ideology works to make people accept the uh, the actually existing socialism, and that's why the great resetters use terms like equity, fairness, uh, equality, and, and they emphasize this need to abolish privilege. And, and you know, basically, we use the whole woke lexicon and the whole woke uh, ideological uh, means to achieve that sort of uh, complicity or compliance, I should say. Yeah, and, and on this topic then uh, of, of woke uh, and leftism, you know, myself and many others, we're trying to figure out, you know, what's the ideology of this great reset. You know, essentially they want, in your book, you talk about this, this one worldism. They want a global government. They've been writing about it for a century. I mean, it's in the elite's papers for a century. It's, it's no conspiracy. They'll call us conspiracy theorists, but it's, it's, it's there. And, you know, you consider the Google archipelago to be exclusively leftist uh, totalitarianism. There, there's people calling it Marxism. There's people calling it fascism, uh, corporatism. Yeah. You know, ca the, the Marxists are calling it this, this global capitalism. You know, one of, one of my biggest problems with the left is how, on one hand, they, they lambast the corrupt 
state and corporations, but simultaneously, look, you know, look to them for salvation. Uh, you, know, you know, for example, you know, they'll criticize the military-industrial complex, deep state, uh, the corporations, and, and but then, that, then they'll flip around and, you know, for example, Robert Kennedy, he says Big Pharma has been criminally con convicted for fraud and murder on many of its, most of its drug products. Yet somehow yeah. they found Jesus when it comes to vaccines, you know, okay, right. so... What was just like a cog cognitive dissonance, and in your book you write, "quote Big digital leftism represents a particular kind of authoritarian globalist identity politics, gender pluralist, transgender, anti-toxic masculinist, anti-cisgender, anti-family, anti-nativist, anti-conventionalist, and anti-traditionalist uh, leftism." So, could you talk about you know? the ideological structure of this Google archipelago. Yeah, yeah, the Google, the Google archipelago is being constructed using all of those precepts, and that is to, to erode, first of all, uh, the nation-state, uh, to erode the family, uh, to erode <coughs> gender, ideal, gender um, identity, uh, to erode... Uh, to, you know, Western, all, all values, but anything that stands as an impediment to it, which would be something like traditional values and all those things, because in order to bring about this one worldism, you have to eradicate, you know, the kind of adhesion to various nationalist projects and so forth. So it's anti-nativist for that reason. Uh, the... The... Uh, the object there is is effectively to leave no buffer between the individual and the corporate state. Um, so this should please your leftist listeners because there is a corporation. The corporations are involved. They're part of the uh, oligarchy that will be running the show or that is running the show. And uh, they are in alliance with the state. You know, really look at China as the model, effectively. Um, you have for-profit corporations, and you have effectively a no-middle class in the sense of a civic civil society of independent producers who are not beholden to the state or to this corporate uh, to the corporate uh, oligarchy on top. So. We don't. They don't have that in China, and that's what they need to eradicate across the, the globe, especially in the first world. And that's been under siege with the COVID crisis, of course, uh, with the destruction of small business uh, and the abrogation of rights. All all of these things are are going hand in hand. So they are constructing the Google Elego, and that is to say, it is a. I use Google as an emblem for this. Now, it's not like all Google is doing this. Google's, the name Google is just an emblem for this whole technocratic elite. Uh, and, you know, the Internet is, of course, one of their main vehicles because, we're, you know, basically that it, it's the public square. It's, it's everything that means anything is digital now. So... Digital, the digital element is really the, the foundation, and digitality really is what will enable all this kind of surveillance and control, uh, and the monitoring and uh, the information collection and 
collation and so forth that will be required to have complete knowledge of everyone's every move and if not their innermost thoughts if we could then i mean expand on that that was one of my questions you know as you did as you've given us this vision that in your book the google archipelago this dystopian transhumanist technocratic uh, vision the elites have for us, uh, as you said, China is the model that has a social credit system. Uh, in your book, I think you said it's it's already operating in, in, in 50 countries, uh, 50 cities in China with these smart uh, cities. And, right. you know, it's like where every imaginable facet of our virtual and physical lives will be surveilled, quantified, commodified. And on this basis, we will either be rewarded or, or punished. One of my favorite interviews that I conducted um, and last year was with the historian Edwin Black, who covered the nexus between Nazi Germany and IBM and, and, and Rockefeller and General Motors. And, and uh, you know, he calls this future cashless society eugenics, and that the consequences of not complying is being put in an algorithm uh, ghetto, like the Jews were put yeah, in the physical right. ghettos. And, you know, you won't be able to buy or sell. You will become a non-entity and possibly literally starve to death, but, you know. Uh, how long, you know, what does this world look like and, and how far, how close do you think it is to, to come, becoming a reality? Well, I mean, the, the social credit score is already on the way vis-a-vis the medical passport, the vaccine passport. Uh, that's going to be the pretense for introducing it for most of the West. And uh, the, the next step will be the digital, uh, universal digital currency. Uh, which will then, of course, make it impossible for you to buy, sell, or trans do any transactions without knowledge, without the knowledge of the central database. And then, therefore, will make it impossible for the black market to survive for other kinds of transactions that are unknown to be made. You basically have to be a, uh, an approved a producer, distributor, etc., in order to be able to trans, uh, conduct transactions. So this is a way of starving off uh, competition, but also eliminating, um, you know, independent and uh, non-compliant uh, sellers, buyers, etc. So yeah, this will be a way to starve off dissonance, in effect. If you don't comply with uh, all of these precepts of the vaccines and the top-off vaccines and so forth and so on, you could be starved out of the economy entirely. Yeah, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a pessimist in the sense, you know, no one wants to listen to me. My, my, my wife sat enough with me, my, my mother uh, in the church group, you know, and, and my, my, my non-Christian friends, it's like, no one is taking this seriously, and it seems like they're pushing forward with this. You know, I was listening to Boris Johnson yesterday saying, you know, by 2022, everyone's going to be vaccinated. And he says, we need to introduce this global, he literally says, quote, like a global surveillance system for uh, a pandemic, right? He literally says for, for uh, a pandemic, you know, it's just like, who are you kidding? It's obvious what, 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 what you're doing. And, you know, for me, for example, now, I want to go back to my homeland uh, in Croatia, but you need to take a test or, or get the vaccine. The EU just rolled out today uh, their green passport. I'm, n- I'm never taking a test or, 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 or a vaccine, so I can't go home uh, now. And it's, 
it's just crazy. And you know, in, in your book, you were, you were mentioning um, bio artificial intelligence uh, politics. So uh, this is like you know the, the biopolitics they call it, the biosecurity regime. And I, I think the same as you that they'll start with the vaccine passport, and then they're going to add modules like link it then to the, to your bank account, and then to your social media, and then to your you know passport. Uh, and, and everything else. And it'll be a huge socio-political, uh, it'll be a socio-political credit score. And I say political because this means your your views and your, your compliance or lack thereof will be registered on that. There'll be an index for that. So if you're not, if you're not compliant in a number of ways, like wokeism or with the vaccines and so forth, this will all be registered. This will all be known, and it will be used in order to allow you to travel, to move out of a certain perimeter, uh, things like that. Uh, and this is what happens in China. I mean, you can't move. You can't if your credit social credit score is too low. You can't leave a certain city. You can't go beyond a certain perimeter. If you do, it immediately sets off alerts. And this will be implemented here vis-a-vis uh, -vis the medical passport as a first step. And as you're right, they'll add different um, algorithmic modules in order to uh, uh, create a total system which will monitor almost every aspect, if not every aspect of your behavior and thoughts, perhaps. We've heard recently, you know, they announced in Israel that they're dropping the vaccine passport. The UK said we're not doing it, but I view it as two steps forward, one step back. I mean, it seems like they're, they're, they're pushing it through. Um, I mean, do, do you see any hope or like for the near future, do you, do you see this like pushing forward? They're trying to habituate us to the idea. And then, uh, you know, like you say, I think there is kind of like... Um, one, you know, one, two step here, a dance going on where they're moving ahead a couple steps, stepping back one, just because, you know, you see the pressure building against it and uh, they, they want to sort of slowly implement this, slowly but surely, and not that slowly really, but yes, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain it's going to happen worldwide. Uh, that this vaccine passport, because what, they're going to have to have different variants in order to justify it. Of course, we know variants really are, are not a threat. As a matter of fact, it's possible the vaccine is actually uh, accelerating the production of variants uh, because the, uh, you know, it allows, it, it, it basically uh, creates variants by virtue of uh, making them more adaptable. <laughs> and um, so, and but the variants aren't really dangerous. What's dangerous is what the responses of the variants, the ideology, the, the narrative around the variants. And this will be a means by which they'll say, well, we have to do it. Uh, and then, of course, there'll be top-ups on the vaccines. And uh, it's just going to be an incremental uh, process whereby they basically draw us into this as an eventuality. Yeah. And, and, and to kind of look at, look at the, the global structure of this, you know, we have the Great Reset out of Davos, World Economic Forum, you've got the Think Tanks Foundations, you know, Gates Foundation, Soros, you know, the whole usual suspects. And a number of my guests have been saying, you know, 
there's this resistance from Russia or, or China, but I kind of don't see it that way. So there's really no good place to stop that fascinating interview, and I have to recommend that podcast, as I always do. And these are just the resources and the tools that that are at our, our disposal at this point to to really move the, the to move the framework of our understanding forward, so that we can get a better grasp of what we're really dealing with when we talk about Google Marxism. I think was the the quotations Google Marxism and the idea of the, the these woke generation of technocrats who have gone through the process of becoming distorted and becoming the intellectual reprobates in, in as much as that they're here now to become the fifth column and to become the, the traitors within the gates and burn down and destroy the apparatus of their own nation, the nation that, that bore them in, in its bosom and brought them you know, up in, in the greatest country in the world in history as far as the advancements and, and the the possibilities of privilege of American privilege that were made uh, available to them and they're using those those tools to become easily conceited and to become manipulated fools and to become really cannon fodder in this work to destroy America and, 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 and by whatever virus idea virus whatever ideological weapon they can muster every any kind of economic theory or social criticism or some kind of undermining factor uh, taking advantage of the the spiraling federal debt the communists are all out of the coming out of the woodwork to to try to to chant their mantra like this sounds like iran you know as far as death to america and these are the people that are every day within the actual country itself and who are protected by its its wealth or by its you know laws and police and government and military and yet here they are trying to undermine and destroy it on every level even going as far as uh, to go inside the classroom and to adulterate children in different ways we find out in these other uh, school districts in Loudoun County that's something that's hitting the news districts apparently transgender individuals raped a girl in, in the bathroom it's just it's so horrifying that it makes you kind of puke in your mouth a little bit but that's that's the kind of disastrous side effects of moral relativism where they think that they can teach everything that everything is just the same as everything else and, and and really, in the end, you know, maybe even rape isn't that bad. Maybe we'll just decriminalize rape now and just get used to it because, after all, like Mark said, we'll just use all women in common. Maybe the transgender guy in Loudoun County Bathroom just used the woman, the young woman in, in common with everyone else just, you know, because she's just a, you know, she's a vaginal you know, receptacle there just to be used, you know, because we're just animals. And that's kind of the, the gist of the, the trans-mortifying and ultimately demoralizing agenda of the Marxists in the classroom. So we're just going to continue on here. We have to, I really want to just turn the dial back and return to our, our episode there at the American Conservative University with Alex Newman and just listen to a few more minutes here. We're getting to the end of the show and I want to listen to a few more minutes of what he was pointing out about the nature of Marxism as it has risen to this monolithic point. Uh, with as far as globalism and becoming an internet a truly international controlling ideological power over many different aspects like the United Nations and the International Monetary Fund and so on and so forth so let's go ahead and just round out the show here and um, go ahead and finish up with Alex Newman why you have this obsession with destroying churches, destroying uh, religious literature, waging war on the Bible and destroying everything that God has ordained. you Jump probably because we went right to the heart of the matter. You jumped past all the other spokes of the wheel. I was going to ask you about is this this is sort of the uh, how we get sold over and over through history 
this idea that things are going to be so much better in this new utopia. You use that utopia, and you went. And that's where I was going to ask you: How do you get from utopia to genocide? I think you already you already took us in fast forward across that. Also, how do you get from everything that's going to be free? We're going to give you, you know, free education, free universal basic income, free, and all of a sudden you end up under total control. We're witnessing in what feels like fast forward over the past year and a half across the whole globe. This idea that, oh, don't worry, we've got unlimited support. You know, you mentioned property rights. You, you'll own nothing and be happy, coming from Klaus Schwab of the uh, IMF and so on. Talk to us about the current day, right now, in our face, in the last year in particular, and perhaps in the next year, what's been already kind of hinted as coming, examples of where we're being told utopia is on its way and we're going to end up with genocide, or we're being told freedom, free things are coming, and we're going to end up with not, you know, owning nothing and being under complete control. Yeah, and we are very rapidly moving toward the global culmination of this effort. Uh, the type of things we've seen in China and Russia and Cuba, etc. Uh, I, I suspect that we are just on the verge of seeing that type of thing take place at the global level. Uh, increasingly, we see the boundaries of nation states being knocked down, being uh, undermined. We're being told that borders are racist. And, uh, I mean, the, the same video that the World Economic Forum put out saying you will own nothing, but you'll be happy. They said, get ready, because a billion people are going to have to flee their country because of climate change, and the West is going to have to welcome them. The United States and Western Europe, what used to be called Christendom, uh, is going to have to assimilate this, this mass, one billion people. Uh, when you realize that the entire population of the United States and, and Europe is not a billion people, you realize the scope of the changes that they're envisioning. Uh, and, and when you look at the global system that they're advocating, um, it is very much uh, technocracy, it is very much fascism, and it is very much Marxism and communism, uh, all fused into one, right? Uh, they, they've realized that Marxism as an economic system really doesn't work. I mean, it, it's so ineffective, even if you have master central planners, that uh, it, it's just not a viable system and, and it ends up leaving the leaders in, in more poverty than they would like to be in any way. So they figured out, using communist China really as the petri dish, that it's you can still have total domination of the society, you can still have total oversight and control of people, while still allowing enough market forces, enough uh, market signals to make production a little bit more efficient. And so in, in China, yes, you still have prices. Uh, you still have a stock market. It's true. Uh, of the 25 biggest companies listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange, almost every single one, I think 24 out of 25, is majority owned by the Communist Party of China. Uh, so yeah, the government still owns the means of production. So I think that this is going to deliver the shock to the system that's necessary in order to for people to kind of advance and to, to make the correct steps and to, to come together consciously the nature of the difficulty that we have maintaining our sovereignty, maintaining our the future for our children, maintaining the the viability of our economy and the happenstance for us to be able to continue to have a financial system in place where people can can benefit. I mean I, I personally don't want to end up with a cryptocurrency, at least now we have this kind of ink and paper and this these these cadmium coins that they pump out with a little nickel, you know, the nickel plated, silver plated cadmium blanks that they pump out that used to be uh, silver coins. 
And at least we have that. At least we have some copper in our pennies still. But with the cryptocurrency, we'll just have nothing but just the banality of digital databases, you know. And you can see, like, every other week, the IRS gets hacked, and Sony PlayStation gets hacked. And, and you know, it's just this whole idea of, of having some kind of technocratic computer cyber age uh, is really, it's, it's anemic. And as we're moving forward, though, I want to take a look back to the geopolitics episode, Geopolitics and Empire. Let's listen to a few more minutes of how they discuss their forecast for the way things are, are looking to be here. Anyway, it seems like virtually every nation, uh, most politicians have been co-opted, uh, bought off. If they haven't, some of them have disappeared or been assassinated. We've seen like in Tanzania and, and yes. or, or Belarus, they tried to do a coup in, in Belarus. Um, but it's but we see there are there's evidence of within Russia, uh, you know, the banking system in Russia seems to be on board. Uh, the prime minister is spoke at World Economic Forum's uh, cyber polygon exercise. So, how, and you've talked about this. It's it's they want a world government, a one world monopoly. You see, kind of all nations are on board. How, how do you see the the structure? They're networking them together. They're they're going to network the nation the national. Uh, governments together uh, and you know you see all this kind of language about universal this that and the other thing universal tax for example cor universal corporate tax these kind of moves are meant to uh, create a kind of one world knitted up system the a global network uh, global corporate tax for example would just destroy uh, non oligarchical corporations by virtue of making it too expensive to operate. They'll just, well, it will just further monopolize uh, the top tier. And they're using the ESG score this way, of course, the uh, environmental, uh, social, and governance score. It's like, a social, it's like a social credit score for corporations. And Larry Fink, the uh, CEO of BlackRock Inc., which is the largest asset manager in the world, is wrote a letter to all CEOs, effectively, uh, major, all the major CEOs received it. And it effectively said, if you don't comply with this CESG index, you're, you're, you're not going to get investments. We're going to direct them elsewhere. So this is a way to keep starving off other certain industries and certain producers so that then it creates more coalescence at the top, less competition, more monopolization. And then the monopolies... Um, necessarily have uh, a vested interest in the state and being effectively part of it or state apparatuses. Um, I consider them to be corporate state apparatuses. They're not really distinct from the state as such. There's a state corporate convergence that's underway, such that these states are, you could say, these corporations are merely state appendages. Um, and it's hard to say who's the hand and who's the glove and it really doesn't matter for our standpoint because you've got to look at them as all in the same uh, coalition and they are going to be, uh, you know, in, you know, you've got to have corporate compliance for these vaccine passports to run. That is, the corporations who are going to be enforcing the requirements for these passports. Can you go here? Can you go there? Can you shop there? Can you go, you know, shop there? Can you travel? Can you not? All this will be done through, you know, the airline industry. Uh, all, all of the major industries will be on board on this. 
so we've kind of fl fleshed out the big picture here. We've given the skeleton structure, you know, the whole great reset. The, it's, it's a global government monopoly, right? Uh, you, as you said, they've net, they're networking all national, you know, nations, national political structures, and then private corporate structures. Um, they're, for us individuals, they're using the vaccine passport and social credit score. As you said, for corporations, they're using the ES to take care of that we we mentioned right. the, the woke the cultural aspect right woke cancel culture um is there any other like component or, that you think uh, yeah well of course the tech the technology uh, and that is uh the, the technology with the passport is going to be involved with which will also as we said we'll have other modules other algorithmic modules uh that will uh, <clears throat> you know, have to do with massive databases where all of this is stored and interactively shared and uh, that, uh, you know, amounts to a surveillance state, a global surveillance state, uh, where by every move you make and possibly the thoughts you have or at least the elements of your brain that are activated at different times will be known. And effectively, there's predictive algorithms that'll determine, that'll try, that'll predict your behavior and maybe even preempt it. So there's technology, there's probably <clears throat> the fusion of the transhuman aspect, the transhumanist aspect, or the fusion of machine and human uh, intelligence, which will be sold as an enhancement. Like, oh, you'll be on the web at all times. You'll be a So, but that will just, just put a pause and we, we can really continue on and on with these kind of different features and discussions and lectures we introduced these kind of audio clips and we're going to continue to do these episodes continuously. Uh, did I say that I would continue? I think I did. Now I wanted to point out that I think that the, the absolutely sublime hypocrisy of these, these hyper uh, ultra leftists, I mean, before they were just, they were really against big pharma, you know, and, and the big corporations. And now they're just in lockstep wearing masks, trying to get everyone to take this federally mandated, experimental vaccine or, or gene therapy and at one time they were really just so sensitive about the poor meat you know the, the poor farm animals couldn't be harmed because of the fur it was so painful for the farm animals we had to watch out for pain and suffering of animals is so crucial and then now we're just we have these you know rampant policies or just having people killed en masse for global population because human beings are, are stinky and they don't deserve the right to have rights and they should be depopulated to save the environment. And so you can see the, the tangential interconnection of all these different philosophical weapons as they're being you know used against us here in America coming out of our universities. You send your kid into university and then you find that these these woke individuals come out reading an article just anecdotally. Uh, some some girl and her, her lover boy went and hogtied their 88-year-old grandma and killed her. You know, and then you look into the background, you can see that it's some kind of university students with some kind of like sorority crap, some kind of leftist bull crap. And, you know, they, they of course, they, these these kind of negative thoughts, this negative thinking that people start to bring about in these environments where people are so open, like sea sponges, they're just open to just sponge up all this information. And just they're just so suddenly and, and totally shaped and, and informed by these ideas when they go in front of these lectures. I mean, I don't know what it is. 
why they can't retain any part of themselves, but they, they go home later and they, they start to walk into the streets and they try to go out at night with signs on the highway and try to stop the highway. And then they're just infuriated when the truck runs them over. And it, it's just, this is the, the, the contagious and the mental illness and the ideological virus of this kind of unrestrained, irrational, intellectual subterfuge. It's really being enacted on them. And they're coming in uh, freshly from these high schools where they have been dumbed down and they have been prepared to, to for the woke agenda and to believe that America is the, the big enemy in the world. And if we could just somehow bring down America and change everybody's agenda to something else, that the world would be a better place. And of course, this is well suited for China, who is getting ready to come with their ultra masculine military and to try to basically take away America's lunch. But in order to wrap up this episode, we have to do a little bit of Charlie Kirk's discussion. Charlie Kirk does a really good job discussing the problem we're having with the classrooms, and it kind of rounds out this whole discussion. So let's listen. Abortion policy is 58% major factor, but curriculum on race and history, 62%. Now, the number one issue is Virginia's economy still, but getting up there is crime and safety in Virginia. These are pretty good numbers, I have to say, for a Republican, meaning like these are issues that Republicans usually do very well with. And now we're in this circumstance where Democrats, people on the left, on television, are no longer able to hide. They are trying to change the baseline of what is the new normal. The Great Reset, if you will. They are trying to propagandize you and gaslight you into saying, well, of course, parents don't have any say over their kids' education. They never used to say this. They used to hide it. They used to disguise it. They used to camouflage it. Now they're outright saying it. Virginia gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe has come out and he said in his debate with Youngkin, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. He thought this was going to be like a big kind of rallying moment, like, yeah, we stand with the state and government and not with parents. But Terry McAuliffe is telling you exactly what the Clinton machine has believed for years, that it takes a village. It takes the state. Not that it takes a family or takes a church. No, he believes it takes the commune. It takes a czar. Cut 42. And I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decisions. You vetoed it. So, yeah, I stopped the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I don't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. It's a little bit muddy because the opposition kind of interjects themselves into it. Young people. We have known for a while that the parent-child relationship is under threat from the state and from progressives and collectivists. They're now saying this out loud. You don't have any say of what the school should teach. And then on CNN, Cut 43, they have come out and they've said, look, let's be very clear. We need to start trusting our teachers more. Enough of this kind of parent involvement thing. We're in charge. The state's in charge. Cut 43. Too many people who know little or nothing about education trying to tell 
uh, professionals who are in this industry who've been working hard. We're coming in as weekend warriors, trying to tell them about what uh, education should look like. We need to put a little more trust in our educators because they've actually spent the time and energy necessary to really understand some of the nuances that are being kind of just blown over here in this conversation. The nuances blown over. You hear that? Some 25-year-old University of Maryland educated Marxist knows about the nuances of your child better than you. I mean, come on, you got to trust the experts, everybody. And this really does show the divide. As we dedicate this hour to what's going on with education in our country, which is the most important issue outside of immigration, election integrity, all those things are important. But I think everyone agrees that if we do not get education on a better path, the country is done. A majority of people in my generation thinks America is a terrible country. That is not sustainable. And this really kind of goes to the divide in the country, which is do we trust a group of unelected, unknown experts to be in charge of important things, or do we trust parents, citizens, to have the liberty and the freedom to be able to make better choices, to have the ability to say, you know what, this is not working for me at Loudoun County Public Schools. This is not working for me in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is not working for me in Cook County, Illinois, for those of you listening on AM 560, The Answer, at District 214 or District 211. Instead, the movement is saying, you know what, give us our child. Stop asking questions, okay? It's not like you know the nuances of what it takes to educate children. For every single parent out there that is listening to this, this should infuriate you. This should inflame you into action. As the divide is very simple. Parents versus the state. So with that, we wrap up another episode here. And, you know, I sometimes this is too much like work and I would... I could think of other things I would like to do with my time, but the truth is I'm worried that some of these things aren't being said in the common marketplace of ideas. And um, we're, we're on Getter, too, so those other social platforms are very suspicious. And I guess any social platform is with that much digital information. But we're back to the same themes, you know, with the idea of, of everyone returning to this new feudalism and bringing all the different nations of the world in line to a global government and a corporate oligarchy. So you can see that there is a kind of elite merger in China, in the West, in, in all ways, in the European Union, just in the huge trade deals that the European Union is doing with China to our to our harm and the, the, the enormous side relief that could be heard all the way in America from the European Union when Joe Biden was elected president. And can you imagine a global surveillance state with predictive algorithms that are able to preempt our behavior and watch our eye movements and track our pulse. Can you imagine that? This is the kind of thinking, the think tanks, the, 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 the Davos crowd, the super uber elite, they really direct a, this, this sense. And, and, and as we had brought up in previous episodes, when we go back to 1822, I mean, Marx is coming out here in 1844. Lots of other things are happening. Millerism is happening in 1844 when, uh, you know, the Adventists were predicting the end of the world in 1844 and it didn't come naturally. 
and they they changed it a little bit. It didn't come. It just it didn't kind of ruined the, the movement. And of course, in 1844, the um, the Origins of Species book by the famous evolutionist that gives the name to Darwinism. So Darwin's book came out in 1844, and, and so and so this this idea of Marxism was really breaking out at that point too. But right before that, in 1822, the idea of internationalism and one world orderism and globalism was really situated in this little event that we call the Congress of Vienna, and ultimately the, the secret treaty of Verona, and the, the Congress of Shri, those, those events by the high contracting powers of Europe were really the beginning stages and the beginning foundations were prepared at that point to arrive at this stage of the game now, where we're dealing with massive one-worldism and what they called Google Marxism. And uh, so we had, you know, these these podcasts, I hope that you're following, we're just bringing to you the information where we have only the tools that, that are at our disposal and we have to look through and bring to you the most, you know, the most illuminating information, the highlights of what is really going on. So you have to, see, you know, my wife was turning to me and telling me how Nancy Pelosi was sitting with the Pope in Rome and and all this stuff is going on at the, at the same time that the, all the COVID doctors are in Rome getting together to say that, that medicine is really being adulterated and manipulated with COVID-19. It's just a huge farce. To really just bring it to a close, Karl Marx is not just pretending to be a Satanist. He is, and so is Albert Pike, and so are these other high-level magicians and uh, secret society acolytes and the, the, these guys who are proponents of the mystery schools and, and the OTO and the other you know original esoteric Freemasonic councils of Europe and so all that has has rigidly remained the same but the world around it has changed as we were now dealing with the European Union so they're they're trying to build global totalitarian control and and the idea of, of having borders is absolutely racist that's what you're dealing with with the you know the imf and klaus schwab and so now we have this whole new lexicon of, of, of equity and, and neo-racism and this this anti-racism movie which is just neo-racism and it just presupposes the idea of donald trump coming out and we have a lot of people who are who are going to be new nationalists now that they'll have to do no right no 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 choice no other hero or or, or champion but the, the trump model of nationalism that we've seen already come out and just to reiterate again that the corporate oligarchy that they're building is moving generally towards china so that china is the model of the corporate oligarchy that they're ultimately trying to build as far as uh, data collection and, and, and trying to watch carefully people's uh, families their family behaviors their work lives they're, they're trying to you know make sure that the algorithm controls thoughts and you know they're building a global surveillance state so with that, guys, I hope you'll support us, and I hope that you'll come back next time and listen to our future guests and our future episodes. Thank you again.